Wow, guys. It is episode one fucking hundred. That's hysterical. I just tried to cue my applause and I had the audio down. Let's try that again, shall we? And I'm not editing this. No, 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 no. Here we go. Oh my God, guys. It is episode one fucking hundred. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I uh, can't believe we've made it to 100. And um, one thing that I need to say first and most importantly is thank you. If you've been here for the entire journey or if you came in halfway through or if you just came in on this episode, um, no matter where you came, (laughs) no matter where you joined, there we go. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, this podcast has been definitely that B word and, uh, it rhymes with Deborah messing. Um, it really has though. This, this podcast has been life changing in a way. And I want to keep doing this until the day I either get hit by a falling coconut or end up in jail or saying some shit on here that in the future is jail worthy. Um, but yeah, I want to, well, maybe I could actually keep doing the podcast in jail, but, uh, nah, nah, I don't ever want to end up in jail. The only time I would actually want to be in jail is like talking to somebody that's in jail. So anyways, thank you so much for for being here, listening uh, to my nonsense, because a lot of this is nonsense, but life is nonsense. So um, thought I heard a noise. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And just so you guys know, uh, I wanted to make sure I included this in my 100th intro uh, before my intro to the guest who is very exciting. If you're listening to the podcast in, let's say, a car, someplace that has really bassy speakers, and you notice that my audio versus my guest's audio a lot of times, even if they're in studio, might sound somewhat not comparable. Like it sounds as though my audio is much bassier. One, that's my voice generally. But two, it's because of the setting on my microphone. So, um, the real quick solution to that is just all you have to do is kind of turn your bass down in your settings, kind of lower your bass, get rid of your bass. Even if it's on like a leveled out bass, sometimes you have to go into like the negative and everything should be good. I hope I'm, I hope I'm worthy of you turning your bass down. Um, if not, I'll go in the corner right now and fuck myself. So having said all of that, guys, thank you so much for being here for the 100th episode. And now we're going to get into the intro to the guest on the 100th episode, Mr. Brad Fidel. Alrighty, so yeah, um, I reached out to Brad, and you'll hear me say this in the episode, but just so um, I get it out here as well, I reached out to Brad a long time ago, back when the podcast was Terminator 101, and I wanted to get him on, but I was never able to actually get in contact with him, so that didn't happen. Um, but we came full circle. There we go, another another name drop 
Um, that's that's one of Brad's current projects, Full Circle, which is available on, um, I'm pretty sure, all digital platforms. I know it's on YouTube, SoundCloud. I don't know about Spotify, but um, Full Circle by Brad Fidel. And uh, so we came full circle with this episode, and I finally got him on. And it was a lovely conversation. Obviously, we did the obligatory Terminator talk and and all that stuff because you guys know me. And if you don't know me, I'm a big Terminator fan. So this was a real treat, uh, really was. But then we get into other conversations as well. So it's a real mixed bag of um, of just juicy goodness with a uh, with a man who is definitely a prolific creator. So Brad, thank you for coming on. Everybody, enjoy this one. I know you will, especially if you're from the Terminator 101 days. Get ready. Get set. It is Brad Fidel. Mr. Brad Fidel, it's, it's an honor to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much. This is uh, so fun fact. I don't know if you know the history of my podcast, but um, it used to be, if you can't tell by my by my backdrop here, by the shirt that I'm wearing, by the hat that I'm wearing, I w- I'm a huge Terminator fan. And when I originally created this version of the podcast, it wasn't called Eddie Green's 101. It was Terminator 101. And it, mm-hmm. it had a double meaning going on there. Obviously, 101 kind of just giving uh, information, but also in reference to the the T101. Um, and so that was the original podcast. And I actually reached out to you, I think, on your Facebook page back, back in the day when I was doing the podcast for Terminator Strictly and uh, invited you on because I had talked to William Wisher. I talked to Michael Bean. How um, long ago was that? This had to be, because I started that podcast in 2018. Okay. So, but uh, yeah, so coming full circle now, no no pun intended, um, uh, you're now on this version of the podcast, which is a completely kind of free form, anything goes. Um, and it's just, uh, it's just really cool to get you on here because... Um, you did an interview with a good friend of mine, Casey Stelkin for T for Two. Uh-huh. And yeah. um Casey's actually been on the podcast as well. And and when I saw that he had gotten you for that and the way he did that, I thought it was really interesting the way he kind of cut that together. And um I don't know, did you see the did you see the finished product? Truthfully, you know, like like actors, you know, who don't watch dailies. I don't watch back my interviews or uh, listen back to my interviews. I, it's just don't do it. <laughs> you stay away from it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I don't want to get even more self-conscious. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel you. It's cause it's like some people are like, do you listen to your podcast when they're, it's like, no, why would I, you know, it's, it's a, it, I am. Oh yeah. Over the years, I've recorded a fair amount of my singing for one reason or another, mm-hmm. whether it be, uh, you know, commercial stuff for songs and movies or whatever. So I'm used to my singing voice, but my speaking voice is still weird to me. Yeah. 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 No, I, I had no idea you sing. That's crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's, what's really interesting is, uh, 
So I, you know, this, this whole thing started in, you know, in the last, whatever, three or four months already um, when the pandemic came and I decided since I was stuck at home to sit down in my studio and finish this musical. It's really a musical theater project, but I finished it in an audio version because I had enough tracks and with some editing and mixing, I could make it work. Uh, so that it's kind of like an uh, and that's full circle the pun that you were yes yeah <laughs> somewhat intending and and um it's interesting because i wondered I've gotten great response it's pretty hard to get people to sit and listen to something audio only for an hour and a half so we've had a lot of people visit and i can see you know the people who who carved out the time to really sit like they're watching a movie it's really like an old time radio show, yeah. you know, because it's like you have to use your own imagination. But um, anyway, uh, where was I? So so that that wanting to share that with people, releasing that and wanting people to know it was there. I my my uh, media thing, you know, I'm just usually in my cave doing my thing and not on social media very much. I've have little spurts where occasionally I do something, but I've been on, uh, actually I took the last week or two pretty much off, but I was on and my media guru was, you know, causing me to uh, post an Instagram, you know, almost every day. And um, anyway, I don't know where we started on all that. My brain is roving, but um, where were we? Blame it on the pandemic because we're all feeling cabin fever, and, and 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 it's just so it's just so weird. Plus, I you know I I have done a fair amount of interviews, and um, it's interesting because for me it's a time machine because the thing I have this current project full circle, and I'll do my little plug. If you uh, go to YouTube and and put in Brad Fidel full circle you'll find it. It's in two acts. You can take a break in between. But anyway, um, yeah, so talking about the past over, I mean, I haven't done that many, but I've done enough that it, it starts to feel, um, it's like in my dreams, you know, it's taking me back. You know, the, the stuff that most people are interested in, you have to realize, you know, we're talking 1984, 1991. This is a long time ago. And I don't really think about it that much, to tell you the truth. In my current life, I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm grateful that it became part of the culture the way it did. And, and it's helped me have the financial freedom to, to do some a lot of work that doesn't make money basically like writing a musical i mean this is for free i'm just giving it out there and one of the reasons i can do that is because of the work that i did in hollywood so i'm grateful for that um but you know it's it's weird no i <laughs> people say what was the keyboard that you used oh so i know where we were so singing so because of the the uh social media exposure you know, the, there's a certain very kind of obvious group of fans, Terminator, T2, Fright Night is actually another niche of people that are really devoted to the, the Fright Night films. And um, in many of the early projects that I did, the, there wasn't enough budget to buy songs. 
So classically in a film, you've got the score. And what I call the score is usually the what is also called dramatic underscore or comedic underscore or whatever. It's the music that propels the scene most of the time with no vocals unless it's being used like an instrument voices or whatever but usually no 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 um lyrics because it's in scenes where you don't want the audience to be distracted by lyrics unless it's some kind of a you know more contemporary montage where it's all about the songs and the lyrics mm -hmm. so so now everybody's got a band and everybody's got tunes that they've recorded on their, you know, everything from their home computer to their phones or whatever. So they're hungry to get them placed, which means put in a film or a TV show. So there's so much free, relatively free music for the production companies to tap into. When I started out, that wasn't true. The only music that was well recorded were major label album releases basically and everything from somewhat known artists to little lesser known but still there's a lot of money behind those bands and artists so a lot of the tv movies or low budget features when they they were in a club or a car or a scene where they wanted the characters to be listening this so score is is the underscore this is what we call source music. It's coming from usually a visual source or an established source, or you don't know that it's a source and you hear this song and it's filling up the track, but all of a sudden it, you cut inside the car and they're turning off the radio and, the, and it goes away and you go, oh, that was coming from his radio, even mm -hmm. though artistic license, it was being played very big. So in these lower budget situations in a time historically, where it was hard to get actual records uh, licensed and, and there was no budget for it, they would just turn to me and say, we need a song here. We need something that's believable coming out of the radio. So ha coming from being a singer songwriter before I did films, I would just knock something out really quick. And for me, I usually just recorded the amount of time that was needed. If it was a 30 second scene, I didn't make up a whole song and record it with the bridge and the instrumental break. I recorded the piece that was needed. It was efficient, right? Yeah. So, so what's happening is these other kinds of very specific uh, connoisseurs of who knows what, you know, uh, as far as um, projects I didn't know were noticed, you know, like these low budget things, they would say, in fraternity vacation there's a song when she's crying and driving in her car what is that song i really love that song and i go i have to think about it for a minute i go oh yeah that was one of the little things that i did myself and sang myself so recently just for fun because that one came up actually uh, several times i thought oh what the hell you know it's pandemic i went in the studio and finished the song you know and wrote made it a three minute plus with two verses and the choruses and the bridge and you know so um yeah so so my voice is actually usually somewhat squeezed and in the background in one of these cases because of the radio or whatever but i sing on a fair amount of scores actually are you so this is uh so we'll get the terminator stuff out of the way because i want to actually yeah, yeah, go for it because i actually want to get into some more uh 
talk that I don't think a lot of people, when they do have the opportunity to have you uh, on, if it's a podcast, if it's a channel, whatever it could be, you know, like you said, so many people focus on that old stuff. And so I want to just quickly ask you, are you featured at all in the Terminator or Terminator 2? Like your voice? No, no, those, those films, even the first Terminator, which is back in the era that I'm talking about, they were smart enough. And I, you know, Jim Cameron, even though that was almost his first film or his first complete film, like, or I don't know, he, he was involved in, what was it called? Piranha 2 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, but Terminator was really his first, as an auteur, it was his first, it was his story, it was his film. Um, he and his producer, Gail Ann Hurd, they were savvy enough that even back then, uh, they brought on a music supervisor. Now, the music supervisor doesn't usually supervise the score. He, he is specifically the guy that's dealing with all the songs. Okay. Because sometime in that time in history, there are some films where the soundtrack album, meaning not necessarily the score or some score, but, but the songs really broke through and sold records. You know, I mean, I don't remember dates, but there was Flashdance, there was Saturday Night Fever. I, I don't remember, you know, I'm not good with dates, but things like that were happening uh, on the bigger production. So, so Terminator had a music supervisor and his name was Bud Carr. And we still are in touch once in a while. And he found these kinds of new groups. It wasn't like he brought in the Rolling Stones or I remember being privy to a project once that wanted to use this little piece of a Paul Simon song. And um, it was going to cost him $50,000 just to give you an example. When back then the whole score budget might've been a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Right. So, so that's one of the reasons. So yeah, no, but Carr did a really great job. So in the club scene and the places where in fact, a, a request that's come up recently about Terminator is the scene. And I haven't, I really haven't seen that film for a while, but this, there's a scene um, in the parking garage, I believe. And just prior to one of my cues or at the same time where he's going back, you know, the flashback forward, whatever you want to call it, um, there's a little piece of, of radio music. Um, and people are asking what that is. And I don't remember. I mean, there's a <laughs> slight chance that it was so unimportant that I did it. But I think Bud really had a handle on every single thing like that. So um, I don't know what it was. But yeah, no, I'm not in, in either of the Terminators as, an, as a uh, singing person. <laughs> that is so funny that you say that so many people, fans are crazy, aren't they? Like fans really can get into like the stuff that you're like, what are you even, why does this matter? Like, why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's an interesting, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, um, and truthfully, because most of my work, my known work happened before social media was really alive and kicking. So really it's like a delayed reaction for me. You know, if some current composer puts out a new, you know, whatever, a new, a new film, you know, um, they're probably looking on social media right away to see what people are saying about the score or they're not, or people are in touch with them, or there's a, uh, there are certain composers that are very social media savvy and they've really created a presence for themselves. They make cool little documentaries about the making of the score. 
I never even thought about that. I mean, we were just so struggling to get everything done decently on time and on budget that I don't even, I realize I don't even have a picture of myself with James Cameron. Ever? Who would No, we were working, you know. Wow. He was actually, he, he, he was, and I guess Linda at that time, he and Linda Hamilton were at my wedding. There might be a picture there somewhere, but that's like a, 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 a private thing, you know, but yeah, I don't have a picture of me with the 110 piece orchestra on true lies, you know, or just certain things. I, it would be really sweet to have. Now those pictures may exist because somebody else did them, but I've never seen, I've never seen one. Wow. Well, if anybody out there has something, we gotta, we gotta send it yeah. to Brad. <laughs> so anyway, the fans, the fans ask for stuff like that. Um, Obviously, some of the people who are doing a visual kind of interview would love to have those kinds of visuals. I don't even have great pictures of me in my own studio. Um, this studio where I'm sitting right now um, was, wasn't was built until uh, 96. So most of the films that people know me for were before that. I was still working for another several years and kind of commuting from here, Santa Barbara, down to, to L.A. But th this is not the studio that uh, those Terminator projects were created in. That was actually this studio is well, much better designed and way cushier. Back in the day, talk about garage bands. I was a garage composer. You know, oh. Terminator, Terminator and T2 were, were done top to bottom. Up, right up to the final mix delivered to the film people in my garage wow that's amazing and, and and you know like that's that is not something that really i mean is that something that still happens today this type of approach to making a film like maybe in the independent scene right no because more because well you have uh, a number of composers. I mean, the first one that comes to my mind, I had my studio and I was in there doing my thing where I wrote and created every note, right? And then in, like in True Lies, there was a whole, the whole score was created in my studio so Jim could hear it, even the orchestral elements, because by the time True Lies came around, the the sampling and all that allowed for me to really mock mock up the score cue by cue um representing what the orchestra was going to be doing even if you know there of the three films we did that's the only one that that uh had live orchestra so so we did the mock-up he approved the cues and then we took my big 24 track tapes to the mgm studios which is now sony um well, actually, I think it's not even there anymore, but it was the old MGM room where they did all the classic MGM musicals. It was so, I mean, Judy Garland, everything was done in that room. So it was amazing that when I got to do some scores in that room. Um, but anyway, we did that there and um, mixed it all together. But now, but around the same time that I was coming up, you know, Hans Zimmer was was coming on the scene as well. And he created a whole I mean, he has a I think it's one a big building or something. I don't know for sure. But he has multiple studios where he, 
a lot of different composers are working and he's supervising and it's another kind of a, approach. I was just this solo guy in my cave. I had some friends help me with certain things, wonderful electric violinist, Ross Levinson, and occasionally this really good professional mixer, Tim Boyle would come in and do the final mix. Like on T2, he helped me with that mix, um, but it was in my studio. So actually, the way the technology's gone, it's so much cheaper to get really good finished product. I mean, Billie Eilish, you know, on her bed or whatever, you know, she recorded her album. But, you know, so it's like, like, um, it's more now than it was then, to answer your question. There are more people doing finished product from their homes as far as composers do, than there used to be. Now, if they're doing a big classical orchestra score, obviously not, but there's a lot of, you'd be surprised at some of the places, just like in the, in the record business, you know, like people recording in their bedroom, this whole incredible album that sells millions of copies. And then, you know, so at the time T2 was the most expensive movie ever made. And Jim loved saying, Brad, you're scoring the most expensive movie ever made in your garage he thought that was cool. that is pretty cool that is pretty cool. it is it is interesting that you say that because yeah a lot of things no matter what it really is so many so many things we can do now from home that you couldn't do back in like you said the era of the 80s maybe even the early 90s no. everything is so much more accessible to the general public you know right you're like when I when I first got myself, when I saw the handwriting on the wall, especially because I like to experiment and not be watching the clock in a $350 an hour studio, uh, when I was working with experimental sounds, not the live musicians, but the kind of mad scientist laboratory kind of stuff that I like to do to come up with, like, what does the T-1000 sound like? I mean, that took a lot of experimenting for that underlying sound that I created for the T-1000. If I was on the clock, it would never have happened because you just you get in this other. It's not a great experimental state of mind. So that's why I created the home studio. But when I built that studio around 1981, I would say. To to create finished product, things were so clunky and and difficult uh electronically and computers were so backwards that it cost you know it cost like three four hundred thousand dollars that i had to cobble together over the years before that and invested a little bit of the time like i got this piece of equipment oh i can get this incredible brain that syncs up the videotape with the music recording machine now it's just like you can do that on your phone you can do that on your laptop you know man yeah it is crazy. It is crazy. And and why you you've probably answered this in a million interviews, but why did you why did you feel like all right, film is film's no more for me. Like I'm done with film. Like why did you leave? Uh you know, probably everybody who's asked me that depending on the day and my mood, the answer is different. But as you know, it's taken me a long time to figure out what did happen. Like everything else in life, it's gray, it's not black and white. So this whole thing somewhere, the first time I got on social media and started to realize people were listening, 
there was something, I think I just went to IMDB because someone told me on their credit list on the early version of IMDB, there was a, a credit they didn't think I had done. It was inaccurate. And it was true. It was before my time. It was some TV show, like three years before the first thing I ever did. I don't know how I got on there. I don't even know how IMDB really assembles all its information. But, but I was looking on IMDB to try to fix that. And I noticed there was this little chat when I opened up kind of my area, you know, with my list of credits, there was this little chatty thing. I don't know, what, what's that? And people were making comments. And I was like, I mean, you got to realize it seems funny now, but, but it's kind of like the stone age before they invented the, the wheel. I'm looking going, people are like writing in, what is this? You know, nobody did that. I didn't know anything. And people are saying, where did he go? Why? And then somebody came up with this concept that I left the industry in some kind of a huff because and then you fill in the blank. People had different ideas of why, you know, that's kind of like the game of uh, telephone. You know, it's, it's the thing where the story changes and the story changes. And it, none, most of it wasn't true. Some of it had gr grains of truth in it. So the bottom line is it took me years. First of all, I didn't realize people cared. Like, where is he? You know? And I'm like, wow, somebody noticed I'm uh <laughs> they're not i'm not there anymore but um and it didn't happen all at once you know part of this is is well, i don't know how long you want to go on this i'm watching the clock a little bit too but but it is interesting because people don't know how hollywood works so so now because of social media there's the fan world right so I get to see how people felt about my contributions to, and this is where fans are really interesting because it's not just Terminator and T2 and True Lies and Fright Night, it's Fraternity Vacation or it's Blink or it's some of the projects that I didn't think were really that much on the radar. And um, so that's really sweet. And yet, you know, it's it opens up this whole, hmm. So let, let me just kind of get to the point. The point is that when everything's a little different now, but, but during this period that I was involved in the whole Hollywood thing, the composer, I'll call it composer for hire. You know, people hire you to contribute your musical idea to their visual, meaning whatever it is, a TV show, a huge movie, an after-school special, you know, it could be just like a wide range of budgets and sizes, and I did everything. I, I didn't discriminate that much. Um, as some people really felt that they needed to only be a movie guy or only a TV guy. I just felt, hey, if they're good people and the project's interesting, it's cool, you know? Um, now TV is a lot cooler than it was during the, some of the period I I was there in, you know, in the old days, if, if, a if, if, a an actor who was in movies showed up in a TV project, it was, it signified that they were over basically, you know, that's completely not true. And I think the freedom and the fluidity now is great, but basically I started out in New York. I scored some little films in the late uh, mid to late seventies came out to LA, scored a bunch of stuff in the eight, starting in the eighties into the, you know, 
late 80s, 90s, late 90s. And then the last project I did, I actually think it was released. It was a TV movie called Y2K, I think was the last thing to give you an idea of when it was, right? I had done some interesting things uh, on some projects where I wasn't, I did an episode of From the Earth to the Moon, Tom Hanks project. I did some, a couple of crazy tales from the crypts, just little things, but I hadn't done a really big film since Johnny Mnemonic. I don't know if you ever saw that one. But, That's with um, Keanu, right? Yeah. So, so that was like, I think that came out in 96. Um, so what happens in Hollywood is really not about the music as much as what projects have you been attached to lately? So the higher up I got into the bigger, you know, uh, tentpole type films, it's a more rarefied atmosphere. And for the most part, unless you're working with Jim Cameron or somebody like that, it's more committee. It's more the marketing guys and the studio guys and everybody's afraid to lose their jobs if they make the wrong choice. And so instead of just a filmmaker listening to your music like Jim did with me before Terminator and saying, I think this guy's got something that's going to work with this film, right? It was more like the head of music at the studio giving a list to the filmmakers of three or four kind of pre-approved names. And then the director maybe gets to pick from those names if he wants somebody else. And I, luckily, I've had some directors really fight for me when I wasn't on the studio approved list. But it really is about not just what have you done lately, but how much money did it make? How many awards did it get, right? So as I got actually higher up in the, in the in, it's like the higher you go, the faster you fall, right? So I went up to a certain place where True Lies lived, say in 94, 95, whenever that was, and did several projects that were interesting projects for one reason or another, but they did not deliver as investments. One of those being striking distance with Bruce Willis, Johnny Mnemonic, you know, didn't really deliver. It was a time, the film had, had weaknesses, certainly. And it was some time where, you know, just there's some dynamic where people were ready to take Keanu down for a while. <laughs> he was just like, you know, certain times people get to a certain place and then they're like cruising for a bruising. I don't know what the deal is. Right. Yeah. yeah. But but so those couple of films, I did another thing with Dolly Parton, a comedy where actually it was wonderful. I got to kind of collaborate with Dolly because I interwove her songs I made into into the underscore in certain places. So I adapted them and I wrote cues where she was humming on top. So that was a really cool project. For me, creatively, didn't really deliver. The chemistry between her and Jimmy Woods uh, didn't really deliver. So I became someone who was not really in demand because I didn't have a top of the box office or super critically acclaimed film. Nobody had any problems with the scores. You know, I've got nice reaction from my work, but. The agent said, you know, I'm, we're having trouble selling you on such and such a project because, you know, 
because the projects I did most recently were not, didn't have spin on them, didn't, didn't have appeal, having nothing to do with the music, just what you're attached to. Right. And I think you've heard this in interviews with actors, but people don't know that it's, it's true with composers pretty much as well. Uh, if you don't have a director who's so super uh, loyal, like a Spielberg, you know, with John Williams or something like that, you you basically are and they'll pull you along. The mat, and they don't care what anybody says, you know. So because of that, what I was being offered started to go downhill a little bit and I stuck with it. Um, and then. So it was like a combination, like I wasn't hot anymore in Hollywood, you know, between Terminator and True Lies, I was pretty hot. Um, not ever super, super uh, mainstream because, you know, those films, even Terminator with its success and, you know, working with Jim Cameron was seen as almost like a separate category than mainstream A-list Hollywood. It was like a flukish kind of thing. I can't describe it, but politically yeah, in yeah, the scene. Yeah. So now, you know, everybody says, oh, iconic score. Yep. And I feel like saying, so where were you after T2 came out? Because my <laughs> offers after that were, were not what you might expect. You well, know, lay I was, people. Yeah. I was only born a year after T2 came out. So I would have been there for you, Brad. I would have been there for you. But <laughs> and I'm not complaining because the fact is that I had 25 productive, wonderful years doing a wide variety of stuff. There are people that come and have one hit film and then maybe they do one other thing and then they disappear. So on the scale of things, I was I, I have a lot of gratitude and an understanding about how lucky I was to be doing what I did in the time that I did it because I had a lot of creative freedom, except towards the end, I was not given that freedom. That's another thing that happened in the industry. Mm -hmm. Jim Cameron showed me True Lies. There wasn't a piece of music in it, which was my request before he screened it to me. And I created that whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. That whole Terminator thing. And that was true of most of the best work I did. As the films got bigger, people got more nervous and they would never show the film without music in it, even though the composer hadn't been hired yet because they had the capability in the editing room to do what was called temp tracks and put in the best cues from every film that they ever loved. And that would be the soundtrack that the executives listened to before they approved the cut, right? This is before the, the final post-production and the composers brought on, right? So by time I came into some of those projects in, you know, now we're talking mid to late nineties, it was kind of like, well, we really love this and they would be playing, you know, John Williams here and Hans Zimmer there and maybe even me, you know, maybe even some of my cues from past projects. But there wasn't that blank slate that I did my best work with, which was here's a film and I get to imagine what it sounds like as opposed to here's a film. This is what it sounds like now. We kind of like it. Can you do something like this? So it shut down my strength which was this kind of open-ended palette to experiment on. Yeah. So it all just, it, it just kind of fell apart. You know, it wasn't me deciding, but I did get to a point where I decided, you know, no more. I had some, some, um, 
some things where a director wanted one kind of score and I did it and he loved it. And then somebody else that I didn't know, he didn't have the final say. Somebody else said, uh, this was on a cable TV, but someone else said, an executive said, no, no, we didn't want that kind of music at all. We wanted this other kind of music. And I'm like, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I did get a little uh, soured a bit and I might've made a comment about it somewhere and that's where everybody, it became Brad left because he didn't like it, you know. I loved scoring films. I felt in a way that I stopped doing it when I was at my peak, when I was just really learning a certain level of depth about certain kinds of film and, and orchestra and how to do certain things. Um, and then it just, I never got the opportunity to really exercise that bit of mastery that I um, accumulated over you know the 25 years that I was working. Yeah, and you hear this a lot in this in this industry. Uh, like one of my favorite examples is Rick Baker. He he is he wins the first Oscar for makeup, and right. by the time he gets to the 2010 remake of The Wolfman, the studio is kind of not having anything to do with Rick Baker's design. They're 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 interfering. They're they're telling him to do this and. And his story is, you know, I got sick and tired of this studio meddling and and it was all going digital. So I retired and it seems like a similar story, maybe not to the it is to the exact degree, but it sounds no, like it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's very similar because. One of the things that I, I think if every artist I've had time, every artist is really honest, they get to a place where they maybe understand their strengths and weaknesses. Nobody's perfect. Nobody has it all, or very few, you know, maybe there's a few people. I've certainly seen a few actors where I'm just blown away at their range and, and how amazing they are in everything you see them in, right? But most, they're really great, they're really great, and then there's this film where maybe the direction and the photography, you know, like, oh, what happened there, you know? Um, I just really know that my strength, my contribution as a composer had to do a lot with my inventiveness. And there's less room for that now in many cases um, because things are being made more by committee. You know, so I think that I'm sure that's a similarity with Rick Baker, you know, where he was used to a certain thing so that there are some, the scores are amazing, many of them they just and now with digital the bottom is amazing i was always struggling trying to get the bottom on the old optical soundtracks to sound as big and and intense as i wanted to even on terminator 2 you know it never quite sounded like man if you'd heard it in my studio you would have gone wow you know but we couldn't get that all across on the the limitations of the film soundtracks technically at that point uh true lies was a lot closer actually because uh, it was, uh, I think, DTS and THX or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And yet, you know, there was a while maybe soon after where I was more in mourning uh, in a way, you know, because though, you know, sometimes you're in a situation, you decide to to kind of let it go. But then, you know, you have these resurgences. Like I would, I would see a film and say, oh, man, that must have been so much fun to work on, you know. Um, but the bottom line is, though there's a lot of amazing 
scores and they're all very in the sense accomplished you know they're rich whatever there aren't that many that stand out after a while it's almost every big action picture has a similar sound can you really distinguish mm -hmm. between one big action picture and the next good point so that's that's where there's like a lot of really accomplished uh, composers, orchestrators, people recording the digital elements of it, all that flexibility. And, you know, when you go back to like, um, oh God, I'm blanking on this name, but an old, old film called One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Does that ring a bell? I think there were, there were cabinet, but Jack Nietzsche was the, the, the composer on that. And he came up with this idea of using a musical saw. It was about these crazy, if you haven't seen One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jack Nicholson, Oh yeah, check check it out. But the score on that was memorable because it was quirky, it was unusual, you know? And I'm not saying it doesn't happen anymore, but it's more rare. For sure, for sure. That's something that I love about the old films. You know, you just, there's a more, um, it, there's a bigger sense of this was a th this was brought together with sticks and glue and right. and 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 now everything and like you said I know it's it's a generalization what we're talking about but the vast majority and I loved your point of how do you decipher now scores between this Marvel movie and that Marvel movie and right. and it it really it's it's hard to do um, yeah. So you definitely got out on top. Something that I love about your filmography is the T2 3D because I'm from Florida. I love Universal <laughs> Studios. Universal Studios is my because I'm wearing the hat right now. Like, oh, that's right. You said you're in Orlando. Yeah. 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 Universal is <laughs> right up the road. So that was always my favorite attraction. And when I can't like when I found out that you were involved with that and I read your post on your website about how you had to fly to the theater to mix it. Correct. Right. Yeah. You know, my impression of my impression of Orlando is so strange because I'd never been there before and they flew me in and I, I think I was there for like, 10 days to two weeks. I mean, cause we had to work at night when the park was closed. Ooh. We were not allowed to work while. So, so picture this, I'm, I'm a real early riser. Just, I'm kind of like a farmer as far as my bio rhythms go, which is one of the reasons I kind of let go of the whole rock and roll touring thing. But, um, they fly me in. First of all, I come into the airport and I'm going like, well, where is this? Is this a real place? <laughs> I mean, it was like, I don't even remember. I just remember thinking, oh my God, this is like, you know, everybody's coming with their kids to have this experience. It was like this other whole thing. They put me up at some big hotel and I had to sleep during the day. And there were, oh, I could hear kids screaming in the pool and all this stuff. And then I had to get up at night and go to the park. And the last people were straggling out somebody would pick me up and bring me over there and then you know we'd be in the room the room that you experienced the ride in or whatever you want to call it the event in the t2 3d yeah. we mixed sitting where the in the audience basically wow. they flew in this very special high-tech mixing board there were 20 in film especially you know at that point in 99 of films 
had left, center, right, and surrounds. That was the tracks. So we're talking four tracks and then maybe a subwoofer track for the really big explosions and whatever. So that was a separate track. So what is that? Five tracks. There were some where it went up to seven because they would give you stereo in the surrounds, right? So mm -hmm. seven tracks. So T23D was 24 unique soundtracks. Wow. So it was just everywhere. It was over your head you know it was like all that stuff each one was a separate channel which is crazy so we're talking like you know four times the normal there were no rooms to mix it in so and it was never i had to create it in a weird way because i did it all in my studio and i had you know anyway it was it was a bit of a technical nightmare but um so yeah we were in there every night mixing there were some very funny mishaps with the motorcycle and the fog because the fog that would, the smoke that would come out that would help that trick where the, the real motorcycle come, comes out of the screen. Yep. Yep. Right. Well, it doesn't really come out of the screen. The screen had to be a, a single, you know, tightly stretched screen. They couldn't make a hole in it. That wouldn't work. So what happens in that moment in T3, T, uh, T, Three, two, three, T2, 3D. God. Anyway, <laughs> what happens in that moment is that the screen, which is on this huge uh, steel frame, goes whoosh, whoosh, goes up and down like that. Yep. In the smoke, in the darkness and everything. It's like a magic trick, right? That's the illusion is that it comes through the screen, the motorcycle. But there's, I believe right before it comes out, there was this fog that appeared really quickly. It had to be a lot of it and quick. And then... The screen does this little thing and then boom, the motorcycle's coming out into the audience. So the mixing board was very high tech and very sensitive. And there was a point where they had to run the real show to see if it was working while we were there, right? Because usually we were just working with the film and this the mechanical effects didn't need to happen because we knew where everything was. But that moment happened and two things happened number one something went crazy with the screen the fog started rolling out and it had a moisture in it and if it hit the board everybody's diving to pull these plastic things over the board save the board it's gonna, you know multi-thousands of dollars are gonna get struck and the guy on the motorcycle almost got killed because the timing of the screen got screwed up and Ooh. started to come down it would have been right on top of them i don't remember exactly with that but it was kind of a crazy so t23d has got some crazy memories for me yeah and that's a unique thing right because up until that point that like there wasn't a lot of examples of a film composer going into a theme park territory yeah i, I don't know i know some guy a lot of guys who 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 worked on scores for disney uh rides and things like that i don't i i think there had been some unusual um configurations of of how sound comes out in certain situations i don't think it was the first of that but but the just the sheer number of tracks and all that i i think at that point probably was pretty pretty unique because there weren't there were just barely the technical aspects available to make that work it was all like literally being kind of made up on the spot, which I love, you know, I mean, cause that's, I had to do that too. I had to figure out a way to record this 
and we kind of discovered things on the spot and had to make adjustments because nobody really knew how these 24 tracks would feel. And I knew that I didn't want to get gimmicky and that that would be a problem. But what really became clear, uh, even though I had done it with all these separate tracks, what became clear when we mixed it was you really want the live effects to be the things that move. So you really feel like something's behind you or something's moving a certain way. But if the music's moving around too much, then it gets confusing. So we really kept the music pretty much focused like a normal concert sound. You know, we did, I didn't play a lot of tricks, a little bit, but where, where I was flying certain signature sounds around because that would have been confusing for the audience. So it was an interesting experience. I don't know that anybody's done anything quite like it. It was a pretty ungainly thing to accomplish. Yeah. And, and while you composed the most expensive movie ever made from your garage, you also composed the most expensive film, as far as I'm aware, per minute. The T2 3D <laughs> film is the most expensive yeah. film ever made per minute. It's only like 12 minutes long. Yeah. And, and the budget yeah. on that thing, I think, was had to be into the like like the 40 50 60 million dollar range yeah yeah well jim was always you know he was always wanting to kind of be out break through certain barriers of what people thought were possible yeah yeah that, that's what i love about the guy and that's 96 so that is officially in your credits that's the last time you ever work with jim, with, with, with jim cameron were you ever yeah and the the irony was he wasn't super involved in that one, at least in post-production. He got very busy if, with Titanic. I guess with Titanic. I met with him and we talked about Titanic and that's another whole story. But um, yeah, so I had, I don't remember the order of things, but yeah, that the, the, you know, the last real in the trenches, note by note collaboration, you know, where, where he was giving me feedback well, that was true lies. T2 3D was like a specialized thing. And he, at that point, he listened to a little bit. And I think he was somewhere and he was hearing stuff, but we weren't in the same place, which is unusual because I always was working in my little garage and he would come sometimes not till two in the morning after he was shooting and sit with me. And I'd say, okay, here's the canal chase. Here's this, here's that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And without going down that rabbit hole, like you said, it's a super long story. I bet the, the, the cliff notes version, how come you didn't score Titanic? Well, okay. So to be Jim, I'm trying to think of how to put this, not just diplomatically, but accurately. Um, there's, My sense is that Spielberg believed enough in John Williams and his range that he just trusted him, right? Just trusted him to handle whatever he threw at him. And the trust was well-founded. I mean, the guy is, is an amazing composer. All of us like to feel we can do anything. And there is truth to be a good film composer. I mean, the range of things that I did from classical period piece about Mayflower, you know, sailing from England to Plymouth Rock to to Johnny Mnemonic to just create, you know, like wide range of things. But Jim 
he 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 respected me and appreciated me but he was still a bit more on some level in his own mind about casting things because it is hiring composers is is casting basically so like i know for a fact that he was doubtful about me for true lies for a number of reasons number one it was a comedy number two it was not you know he was afraid because it had arnold already that people were going to think it was another terminator movie in disguise so to put me on the team you know i'm sure people said no no don't do that you know but um luckily he he saw something that i had done with orchestra around that time i think it was it was actually a uh, striking distance and he realized yeah yeah brad can do this you know so and i did like a i was hired but then i did this whole suite of the main true lies themes and because i knew he was a little nervous about me being on the project even though he had hired me and he just he relaxed and everything was really smooth sailing after that when it came to titanic we had this meeting really great meeting my agents afterward the feedback was from the producer jim was really happy and whatever but it's somewhere along the line i think he just he just decided now he hadn't worked with me exclusively till that point you have to realize he was trading with me and james horner always in other words i did terminator um i know again the order escapes me but james horner did aliens right I did T2. Actually, uh, Alan Silvestri did the the Abyss. He yep. was the only other one-time composer because I think James did three and I did three, and then there was Avatar, right? So he just looked at it and he knew my strengths. I mean, you got to hand it to the guy. What I've described is that I work best without a temp track. That I really that that's where I excel. And he had been listening to Enya while writing titanic really kind of like not what you would think right for a period piece historical film and i think he was a little concerned the one thing he said to me he said you know we've you've i've always shown you the film and you come up with something that's so great what if i show you the film and what you i don't like what you come up with which is kind of like a a simplistic question and then i just said well you know I'll do something else i'll do whatever it takes to get it to where you want it but i think in hindsight he was thinking i really love the enya stuff and i want my composer whoever it is to kind of at least for part of the score to mimic that sound i'm trying to get in his head i really have no idea yeah yeah bottom line is he cast james horner james horner knocked it out of the park i would never and this is where you, where I there's almost like this mystic thing to Jim's instincts. I would never have thought of writing that song for the end of the film. Jim wasn't thinking about a song for the end of the film. It's a period piece, a contemporary song. You know, I don't know. It's kind of like, well, whatever. So I, I believe that James had this idea and did this really sweet demo. Um, and I think he got the main people involved with that demo ended up being the final uh what's her name celine dion i think did the demo yeah um so anyway what can i say i mean that song was a big part of the success financially of the film i believe you oh, know i think it really yeah. it just it just launched it it's like because people were thinking of course it's jim's film it was amazing right but it was quite a contribution so 
you know, if my contributions to the Terminator films were kind of essential on some level, at least for the fans, they feel that James Horner's song for Titanic was essential. And Jim's the one who made that decision. So he gets credit for it. And what could I say? You know, I mean, ultimately, I was a bit disappointed. And that's that's the way it goes. You know, not everybody has that kind of blind uh, thing where they use the same composer, you know, blind trust, where they trust the same composer over and over and over again. So um, I, I, I'm grateful that we did the three things that we did together. And, you know, that was that was the, the Titanic. And it's still, you know, and then. I was already gone, basically. I wasn't current when Avatar came out. Came about, yeah, yeah. And but but so. but but that's also James Horner, I believe. Yes, it is. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know who's going to do the 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 next ones because because James Horner had a, a tragic accident in his little airplane that he flew. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, arguably though, Brad, I think you, I think you, if you were to go up to somebody on the street and say. Hey, hum, hum the Terminator theme for me, and then do the same exact thing, like an experiment. Flip it around, say, hum the Titanic theme for me, not the Celine right. Dion song, not the right. My Heart Will. Hum the actual musical composition. Right. I think so many more people would be able to do the dun 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 dun. Like that's the that's the thing. So you right. know, not that you don't sleep well at night, but if this adds anything to it, you no, created. No, I, I, I'm really I'm at peace with all that stuff you know it, it is funny that's what I early on said you know having these interviews and talking about it all and being asked yeah you know, this whatever I went through about Titanic right I think it had a big impact on the rest of my career to be honest because the way Hollywood works the fact that Jim didn't choose me on this big mainstream romance that he did maybe limited my my impression in people's minds of what i was capable of or if this guy you know anyway it opened up probably questions but you know whatever it's a long time ago um as an artist in a sense uh my life got freed up quite a bit it's a tough you know there are guys that that do very well with it and they have a lot of help to be fair, um, because things are very stressed and crunched now, schedules are tighter, you know, so so really on many of the very big films you see, it may have one person's name on the credit, but it's often a, a, a team of people um, composing that because the schedule just makes it impossible for one person to to do it. So I feel really lucky for this really interesting time where it was perfect for me because I think I wouldn't have got, I wouldn't get hired today necessarily. You know what I'm saying? It was things were early enough and I had something a little fresh uh, to, to, to bring to the table back in the 80, early 80s that I got on board at a time where previous to that, it was a very small club of, of Hollywood composers, really small. And I might not have gotten in 10 years earlier, you know? Wow. So, so when I look back at the whole window and how it worked with, with who I was and my interest in creating new sounds and new musical moods that weren't the classic Hollywood score, 
that really worked well for me. And that period was a period that I was very well suited for in that particular thing. So, hey, you know, it's like, I hate to get over Buddhist, but it was all perfect and it is all perfect, you know? Um, and I was getting pretty burnt out truthfully and stressed and I'm not a thick enough skin guy to survive probably how the business is now, how it consistently is now where you're just scratching, you know, young composers, man. It's like, we never, I never did free demos for a film to get a job. Never. I was hired based on my previous work and meetings and discussions, you know, um, now apparently more like the commercial business always was you know people are up for something there's four or five guys and they kind of do a test chunk of score for it to try to get hired so they're working for free a lot and like try raising a family on that you know yeah yeah but what you since you so so since you've left and now you're off doing like you said you're like really i i would imagine passion projects like full circle absolutely full circle would be something that you would identify as a passion project. Totally. It's, it's all mine story, characters, dialogue, every, every word, every note, and some beautiful, wonderful performers, uh, performing and singing the, 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 the characters. Yes. So, yeah. But you're able to do that because you're getting, do, do you still get the classic R word royalties from all this stuff? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was it is. a workaholic. You know, yes, the Terminator is a big piece of it, but I was doing almost more than I should have. I mean, there was a point where, where from I'd say the mid 80s to the mid 90s, I insisted on writing every note myself on one hand. And I was trying to work and keep a career building and rolling on the other hand. So that was pretty stressful. Um, that's when a lot of people started to have ghostwriters and, and things like that. And I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, so yeah, so luckily I worked so much that my catalog around the world, one way or another is uh, part of what keeps me and my family afloat. That's... One of my other passion projects after leaving Hollywood was that I learned to surf right after kind of right in that, period. That was perfect too. I had no idea that I wanted to surf. And a friend of mine was going through a divorce and he said, come on, let's go down to La Jolla and take surf lessons for a weekend. I was like, okay. You know, and I fell in love with being in the ocean and the whole challenge of surfing and became a bit of a scared my wife a little bit, became a little bit of a surf bum for a couple of years, decompressing. Uh-huh. You know, I'd been in studios, airless, yeah. no natural light studios. That's liberating. Really I bet since my teens and now i'm out with dolphins who cares if my surfing style is yeah. pretty questionable but you know i'm out there and i'm doing it and i'm i'm braving some pretty tough conditions and the immediacy of that was really great you know so anyway one of my first passion projects though i was always writing stuff um even while i was doing right after true lies i wrote a whole animated musical just my own passion project um between True Lies and Johnny Mnemonic, somewhere in there. Uh, never got produced. Got close, though. I got to some top studio people who were considering it. Uh, it was a pretty kooky project. But anyway, so yeah, uh, my other thing was I always loved architecture. And, you know, in the 60s, I was a musician. I never 
said, hey, I'm going to stop all this music and go study architecture because the music thing seemed to be naturally rolling. And uh, so after learning to surf and thinking I didn't know how long the royalties would last or how well they would do or how iconic those Terminator movies would be, um, I designed and built a, a surf hotel in Mexico. Just like I was raised, I was really lucky. I was raised by parents who were artists and creativity was their religion. And they basically said, everyone's creative and it's all just creative solve, problem solving. You can do anything you put your mind to that cliche, yeah, yeah. but in a very specific way. So I thought I tried to get this. I had this idea to build this little mini, mini, mini hotel um, uh, retreat, whatever you want to call it. Uh, on the main coast of Mexico down um, above Acapulco. Anyway, the, the, uh, I had that, I tried to get some architects that I really admired to do it and none of them were available. This was before the crash of 08. This was like 07 or something like that. And um, I thought I can do this. I'm a creative guy. So I taught myself an AutoCAD program, a simple one. And I designed the whole hotel on, on, on the computer. And then we got a young architect in Mexico to check and do the engineering and the electrical and plumbing. But I did the sculpture. You know, I, I created everything, including the indoor built-in furniture and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's all that's what I'm saying. It's all perfect. I would never have gotten to do that. And that place stands. Music comes and goes. But it's really interesting because there are families that have their vacations at this place for years. It's been open for 10 years now. So this is a this creation that I did um, that is in 3d <laughs> yeah that's it's awesome there, you that... know so so i would never have gotten to do that if i'd stayed in hollywood and uh yeah that's amazing i love hearing that then and and, and I, I don't necessarily think that i would have ever thought you were into surfing you don't come off as somebody that that seems like and this is something you still do to this day oh yeah absolutely i mean it's been difficult uh with COVID, I don't go to Mexico. I haven't been in, you know, usually I would go to Mexico for a week every four to six weeks uh -huh. to take care of business and to surf, you know, surf three hours in the morning and then deal with my on-site manager and the books and all that stuff. But um, yeah, so I haven't been in the water and I had a little bike accident and broke my collarbone and had to get a uh, little chunk of metal put in there. But um, so I have not surfed it seems like a dream to me. Like you're saying, it doesn't seem real that I'd be a surfer. I'm starting no. to believe it myself. But I do <laughs> I do have some some videos. You know, I'm never starting at age 50 to surf. I don't have that that young person's muscle memory where it all looks so incredibly natural and fluid. But I can do it. I can get out there and surf some pretty tough waves uh, competently, you know. But they say the best surfer is the one having the most fun. Hey, there you go. Right? And so I, I, I adhere to that because I see videos of myself and I'm like, oh God, yeah, in my right? mind, I'm in my mind, I'm so much cooler. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Which is true about me in general, but that's another whole story. No, that's awesome. And you probably you definitely surf better than I do. I've I don't think I've ever picked up a surfboard. I I wouldn't know the first thing about how to even catch a wave. That's what it's called, right? Catching a wave. Yeah. And, and the problem is it's so it used to be kind of an alternative lifestyle, uh, you know, kind of like the East Coast version of beatniks, you know, uh -huh. uh, back in the day, <clears throat> excuse me, were 
West Coast, it was surfers. You know, they were kind of suspect, you know, kind of living in their vans, kind of got, you know, guys and gals who adopted that lifestyle. Now it's so mainstream and everybody's learning to surf and going to surf school and it's gotten so crowded, yeah. which makes it a little harder and literally more dangerous because the biggest, you know, people say sharks. Well, there are sharks, but the thing that's the most dangerous is really getting hit by someone's board because they're hard and they have sharp fins on them and you can, you know, things happen. Yeah. Was there a little piece of you that when they announced that whatever year it came out, the Point Break remake, was there a part of you that was like, hmm, that, that, no, that, that has you know, surfing really, in there? No, you know, <laughs> and, and um, yeah, you know, it's like I, I have certain memories of, of, do, of, of scoring that are just wonderful. And I have plenty of memories about how, difficult and stressful it was and i'm really you know people say would you come back I, you know there's just i can't imagine it because it's a little bit like once i was out and realized that i wasn't going to go broke which was a big concern about letting go when i decided i'm not going to hustle after this anymore I, you know i don't i don't really like the way it's going on whatever um but the bottom line is there there's i'm kind of relieved you know for sure there, you know i i had gotten to a place and this is why i said it's a young person's game you know somewhat unless you have are totally you're so big and you can afford a, a, a crew of six that take care you do the funnest part <laughs> the most creative fun part and all the things I used to do myself, including recording the scores myself and mixing them, some of them, you know, the ones that Tim Boyle or, or, or Dennis Sands weren't mixing in, a, in, a, in another room. But a lot of the scores that I'm known for, I basically engineered it as well. So it was really, um, it was intense. And by the time I hit 50, you know, my back started to go out. We know now that sitting is like the new smoking. You're not supposed to sit for more than... 45 minutes or an hour before you get up and do something, you know, um, I, we're totally breaking sitting. that rule. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm saying I, I'm going to need to, if there's anything you wanted to cover that you haven't covered, we should jump to it. Yes. I wanted to, um, uh, so talking about how you were, were, were saying how everything's perfect. You wouldn't change and it's all meant to be. Um, when I knew that you were going to be coming on the podcast, I didn't know when, but when we had confirmed that you, uh, would be coming on. I was listening to another podcast that I'm a big fan of, and an ad came up in the middle of that podcast to, you know, obviously like a sponsor. And as it was playing, I was like, "Wow, this is this is something I've never thought of." First of all, and second of all, I love the reference. So I'm gonna play two of the things. They're like 30 seconds each, and okay. I want, and then I want to get your comments on it because it's something like I said I've never thought about this, but it actually is a very valid thing that they bring up in these in these sponsors. So here's the first one. This one is just the reference that I love. Um, so here we go. When you think of robots challenging the government, what do you think of? I guess the Terminator destroying all humans. Well, it turns out first they're coming for our music copyright laws. So this is a podcast called Wild Wild Tech, and they do different episodes all the time. This one, they're talking about music copyright laws. 
And I was like, hmm, interesting. It, like it caught my attention. The next episode of the same podcast that I was listening to started with the same exact sponsor, and this is what they played. This is Jordan from Wild Wild Tech. Pop quiz, Joshua. Can you tell me what song this is from? Dun, 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 dun. Uh, it was Ice Ice Baby. No, wait, it was Under Pressure. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Can you tell the difference? On this episode of Wild Wild Tech, we'll be looking at what makes music unique and how copywriting music protects and hinders musicians. We'll be talking to two people who are using artificial intelligence to create billions of melodies to try and thwart music copyright laws. The big question is, is music copyrightable at all? If all it is, is a series of notes placed in different orders, all of which can be figured out by computers. Well, so that's the question that I've never thought of in the first place. Is music even copyrightable? Oh, absolutely. Um, so far. So far? So far, you know, I mean, obviously things are being challenged. The problem, I mean, this is, okay, I'm a, I'm a left-leaning, we write, you know, hard on my sleeve liberal, you know, I think everybody should be helped to have a decent shot at life in an equal way and all that stuff. And freedom, 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 right? To be who you are, marry who you want, all that. And so I get sometimes that the idea that the copyright restrictions, I don't know, you know, what they say, I don't remember, I can't quote what they just said, but, but they're implying that the copyright really hurts musicians in some creative way. So here's the deal. You're, this is a huge discussion and it really has to do with intellectual property and what does that mean, right? So we want there to be wonderful creations in the world. And one of the only ways that people that devote their lives to creating get paid back is kind of launched through the idea of con of copyright right so for instance when the terminator theme if there were no copyrights i would not have been able to survive pretty much as an artist well it would have been touch and go but the bottom line is when general motors decides to use, this is a true case, decides to use the Terminator theme for a credit card commercial. They're introducing a new credit card, right? The fact that it's copywritten means I, the original artist who spent my whole life to get to the point where I could create something like the Terminator score. There are many years I didn't make any money. I mean, I invested my whole life in being a creator and really for the first at least 15 years of that, it didn't really pay me back for my investment, right? So the fact that that they're using this thing and it's to sell something, it's not like for a nonprofit, <laughs> you know what I mean? That the copyright causes them to have to license that and pay for the right to use it. And part of that money goes to the people who hired me, right? Because that's a contractual thing. Uh, when you do a film score, you don't, I don't own the copyright to any of the music that I've done for film. And that's the way it goes. Because if I was a filmmaker and the composer owned the copyright, say I wanted to release the film 
in a certain format and the composer said, no, I don't like the way it sounds. You can't use my music. Then the film, you know, so you can understand why film makers, producers, whatever, they, they control the copyright contractually. I get a share of income from what comes in that's outside of what I was originally hired for. So a commercial for GM is definitely not the Terminator, right? It's not, they're not. So anyway, that's a form of income that makes it worthwhile for artists to invest their lives and be starving artists a lot of the time, you know, but it's a gamble. And if you're lucky, like I was, you get to work on some things and people trust you and you have a career, but a big part, yes, you get paid to do the original project, but a big part of what, what sustains artists and songwriters, there are songwriters behind the scenes that aren't the rock and roll stars. They don't get paid for a public appearance. They get paid based on the copyright. And we love the songs that they wrote. And then we're not willing to pay them. So this is something that's come up with streaming services and all that. It's a very big subject, but, but, as to what's copyrightable, there's been a lot of, of law and discussion about, you know, if you go da-da, that's not copyrightable. If you go da-da, probably still not copyrightable. But on the other hand, if you're a really good music attorney and you have a musicologist and somebody goes da-da, da-da, Luckily, because the studios own those copyrights, they have lawyers and those lawyers will go out and say, hey, it's proved that that's an iconic piece that people recognize attached to this particular score. So there are certain ways that notes and rhythms are put together. And as with George Ham Harrison uh, in his suit on My Sweet Lord um, was almost exactly like this other piece of music that was just an R&B, what was it called? Um, He's So Fine, I think. He's so fine, my sweet Lord. Who knows how that happened? George Harrison didn't need to copy it. So it was in his subconscious or it was one of those things where there are, are only so many notes and the human Western civilization only has certain pleasing combinations of those 12 notes right yeah, yeah so so it becomes a whole a whole question as to really intent right if somebody wants to get the attention of an audience by suggesting something that's meaningful to them like the terminator or a hit song from the past and it's clear that you know these things go to court and and they have to be proven not just that the notes are the same so i get that you know there's only so many notes but if it's something's being quoted for the benefit of the person doing the quoting then then you're in a place where it's really kind of you're you're borrowing something at the very least if not stealing it that is of value and you need to pay the appropriate amount. Um, I would hate to see what happened if if they did get to a place where they blew up the whole idea that music is copyrightable. Because I think, like a lot of other things in this world, people aren't thinking the big ecosystem that's there. They're making a decision 
based on you know some idea or whatever or greed and they don't want to pay or whatever it is and they're not thinking about the whole domino effect of if we make music uncopyrightable 10 years from now what music will we have now if you want to say if you want to say you know like almost a more communistic socialistic society that we're going to support creative people we're going to give them a stipend so that they can live and create because we love what they do but they can't copyright it because we've supported them and it's just public domain everybody gets it's it's a thing for the benefit of society we support artists somehow they qualify to be in this program and things like this do happen a little bit more in ireland and the uk where there's stipends giving to given to actors and theater people and people to keep the culture vital, right? If an artist in the US was receiving any kind of help from society, from tax dollars to keep them alive, then I would say, hmm, there you have a question. They shouldn't then double dip necessarily and charge for the right to use it. Yeah, see, the, but this is why I needed to ask you because that's something that I like I have no say whatsoever but it's something that the the second that thing played I was that's a good question because they like the song they used to introduce it the dun 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 dun, dun like what song right. is that and then right. it's two different things and so I just wanted to get your take on it but I also have to recognize that they're they're probably in that episode I didn't take a listen to it but they're probably focusing more on something that is not a film composition. They're probably thinking more along the lines of like traditional album releases, you know? Right. So. Oh yeah. But, and, but we have to realize that, you know, there are iconic film themes that people could take advantage of because it's instant recognition. You know, that's what you want when you're selling something, whatever if you can get somebody's ear or eye by some instant recognition. Like if somebody show, say they, they, I don't know, even know about this part of the world, but an, an exact imitation of, of the Terminator, whatever it's called exoskeleton, right. With the red, you know, like exactly. And they use that to sell something, you know, there's uh I don't have an answer to it, but it, but I do want to I do want to have a society where where creative people are are recognized and what they create has some. I think it's terrible for painters. There are starving painters, right, mm -hmm. who sold their painting for for four hundred dollars, and thirty years later, it's being sold for two million dollars. They don't get royalties for that. So that there's a, I mean, it's a big conversation for sure. And and just to do full circle to tie it back, it, isn't that the same thing that happened with with Jim when he sold the script for Terminator? He sold it for a dollar. I don't I don't know that story actually. You don't know that story? I'm, no. I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. He wanted to make sure that he was the director, and so he right. sold it. He sold the script and the rights, as far as I know, for one dollar to uh, two. To I think it was Gail. I think Gail Ann Heard oh, okay. and um, or Ryan. I think at the time. Um, yeah, the pick the original production company was actually uh, I think they were British. It was called Hemdale, and then that was right. under the under the umbrella of Orion as the distributor. I don't know what the machinations are of that. Yeah, but when you said that about artists selling something for such a tiny thing, and then all of a sudden the value goes up. 
it, it just made sense to bring that up to you because that always blew my mind. One dollar he sold it for. Just- well, and that's a choice. So 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 you would have to say that's a choice. And, you know, if it goes crazy later and he kicks himself for that decision, well, that's just, a you know, that's a decision. There are um, songwriters, there are artists in the world that early in their careers got kind of taken advantage of in their original contracts um, that became, they became very popular and then they have successfully in some cases gone back uh, to court to question the, the how they signed and what conditions they signed under and what their understanding was. And sometimes some of the rights are given back to those artists regardless of fact that there's a signed contract because there's, again, it's intent. There's proof that on, on behalf of the people that made the contract that they were taking advantage. They knew what they were doing, that the, the person was hungry to get going and that they were really tying them up way beyond what they realized. No. Anyway, yeah. I got to go. No. Is, I, there, is there any? You read my mind. I, I literally was just about to say, I loved this episode. I love that you came on. Um, I love that we were able to do this. Just hang around because I do want to do a like a like an actual farewell, but just for the recording, it's going to be like a okay. minute. Uh, but just for the recording, thank you so much for coming on and 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 giving your wisdom. And this was a real treat for somebody who uh, has been and will always be a Terminator fan. So, uh, well, um, thank you, Eddie. It's my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. So, uh, like I said, just hang on one second. I'll be right back.